Hello, Vault Dwellers. Here are some current events with Cold War Echoes. I have to be honest, it does contain a geopolitical commentary, and that's because I believe that it's an important perspective to have on the global situation today. It edges close to opinion, but worry not. Full-length episodes will still present the historical facts as apolitically as possible, just as I would teach a class. But to soften the blow of a weighty monologue, I bring gifts. For those of you sitting out the various states of lockdown in your respective communities, I have something special indeed. But more on that in a minute. I want to announce that I've set up some advertising tiers, but I'd like to offer advertising space to my listeners first. I'd rather include some ads from actual listeners that might resonate with other listeners before I just haul in some strangers. The truth is, the vault does need to generate some revenue if it's going to grow. So, if you're interested, send an email. DJ at coldwarvault.com or find me on the website or anywhere else. I'm not some secret and shadowy character. Or am I? Now, on with the promised gifts. Here's the trade. You listen to a little piece of Cold War history and I will point you to something that will fill untold hours of your quarantine experience. Ready? On with the show. Joseph Stalin was an autocrat and had a decidedly amoral streak, but, or and, he was also an avid fan of film. Let me draw a little piece of history from Nikolai Kremensov's scholarly work, The Cure, which is about Soviet science, among other things. As Cold War politics began to permeate every aspect of the Soviet state, science itself among them, as you might expect, the arts were harnessed for the ideological drive to victory as well. You might imagine that films were censored in the Soviet Union, but during Stalin's years, this isn't exactly how I would describe it. Censorship evokes a kind of bureaucratic apparatus processing the output of artists to fall into line with party doctrine or social norms. But so far as film went under Stalin, censorship was far more blunt and far more personal. Stalin was truly a movie buff. He personally decided the fate of every single film production undertaken during the years of his reign. If you watch a Soviet film made between roughly 1937 and 1953, you will know that it was watched and judged by Joseph Stalin himself, personally. More than any other, his favorite pastime was to watch films late into the night after Politburo meetings, often accompanied by the other members. So I can imagine the light-hearted atmosphere surrounding a screening of Volga, Volga, for instance. It's a 1938 musical comedy that is claimed to have been Stalin's favorite movie. He screened the films in his personal theater in the Kremlin, 
and if he didn't like it, it was remade according to his notes, or it was destroyed. Or, if he loved it, it would be shown in every cinema in the Soviet Union. If he didn't like something, and he had it destroyed, it vanished like his enemies. This happened to the second part of Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible, which was banned but did return after Stalin's death, though a more permanent death sentence was issued for part three of that film. The few scenes that had been shot were destroyed under Stalin's orders. The great critic often made notes on screenplay drafts as well, suggesting everything from camera angles to dialogue changes to better comport with the state-sanctioned philosophy of dialectical materialism. I say suggest, but I imagine that a production note from Joseph Stalin was a tad bit more concrete than a suggestion. Now, here is your coronavirus lockdown entertainment gift, courtesy of the Cold War Vault. Well, it's actually courtesy of the hard work of the Reddit user, Russian Enthusiast, who has created a website called Russian Film Hub. This is not an ad or anything. I was just extremely excited to share this when I discovered it this week. It's essentially a Netflix-like catalog of hundreds of Soviet and post-Soviet Russian movies that you can watch for free. There are other post-Soviet states included as well. The creator writes, On Russian Film Hub, you can legally watch hundreds of Russian and Soviet movies with subtitles for free. Almost all the movies have English subtitles, and you'll also find ones with subtitles in more than a couple dozen other languages. The movies are cataloged by genre, year, director, and even IMDb rating. Once you find the movie of your Soviet dreams, it will open in whatever video service it's sitting on, YouTube and the like. Check out the Cold War Vault Facebook page for some links to curated lists of these movies from the website Russia Beyond. But my personal pick, because I'm just strange this way, is a 1986 Soviet film called Dead Man's Letters. Sometimes it's referenced as Letters from a Dead Man. You know the film The Day After, right? I'm sure you do. And I know many of you know the far more bleak nuclear war dramatization, Threads. I spoke in an early episode about my relationship to that film. Well, Dead Man's Letters is undeniably more bleak and horrifying than either of those. It is stunning. Don't show it to your kids unless you want them to grow up to be a history podcast host. But if that's too much for you, just relax with the ghost of Joe Stalin and 1938's Volga Volga and everything before, between, and since. Should we look at a serious take on events? Alas, I think we must. Because the virus has accelerated the timeline of the new Cold War, and China's ambitions are boundless. I know that the virus has many of you feeling down, and news overload is demoralizing, 
but given the nature of this podcast, I do think it's necessary to touch on it from time to time, because whether the crisis is real, imagined, or manufactured, it has laid bare a fundamental societal schism between China and the West. A fundamental incompatibility of the two systems, the near certainty of conflict, and, as always, the Communist Party of China's almost pathological inability to take any action without doublespeak and duplicity. I'm still wrestling with some geopolitical science perspectives that assert that the current situation is somehow different from the 20th century Cold War because of globalization and the mutual economic reliance between the United States and China. That was always the case with the Soviet Union also. It really was. Maybe it just wasn't always so obvious. There is, of course, the abstract way that the Cold War supported the military-industrial complex in the United States. And remember, for as sinister as that term might seem to many of you, and possibly to Dwight Eisenhower, who coined it, at its foundation, the military-industrial complex is made of people. They're individuals working for Boeing or Lockheed or Raytheon who take home checks that go to grocery stores, truck drivers, and farmers, and everyone else. So, the 20th century Cold War was hugely profitable in that regard. And the Soviet Union was reliant on the United States as well, in many ways, but its agricultural infrastructure was tightly tied to the U.S. In the early 1980s, Moscow began to buy grain from the United States again, after the partial grain embargo of January 1980, which was a very dangerous response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Moscow resented the fact, but they picked up where they left off, buying grain from the U.S., after Reagan lifted the embargo. Stalin's tenure in the top job in the USSR had a chilling effect on the economic cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union. But after a few years of thaw, by 1963, for the first time since World War II, the USSR contracted for a massive purchase of grain from the U.S., there was no way that its method of agriculture was sustainable without external support, though that support didn't always need to come from the United States. In any case, the massive Soviet famine of 1932-1933 to was very much still on the minds of post-Stalin leaders. That disaster killed millions upon millions of people. The Ukrainian Holodomor was a part of that famine, and I spoke about that briefly in episode 14, Chernobyl and the Russian Woodpecker. So, to support its very rocky agricultural model, by 1972, the Soviet Union was a regular buyer of ever-increasing quantities of U.S. grain. By the early 1980s, it had turned from a net exporter of grain to a net importer. Its economy and the health of its people were reliant on trade with its Cold War adversary, the United States. And this is the kind of mutual reliance we can see today with our very unsavory global economic partner, China. While one hand waves and shakes and signs trade deals 
the other authorizes ever more dangerous engagements in the South China Sea. It is a delicate but theatrical balancing act that promises both unrestrained economic growth and unconstrained world war simultaneously. And that seems like a very cold war to me. At the risk of oversimplifying a gargantuanly complex topic, a fair corollary can be drawn between the current situation with the U.S. and China and the U.S. and the Empire of Japan in the pre-World War Pacific. War on some scale had been a clear possibility for 20 years as Japan expanded into Southeast Asia and very visibly exerted its military might. But the U.S. and Japan remained trading partners right up until 1941. It was when a U.S. policy of resource strangulation went head-to-head with an imperial Japanese policy of geopolitical expansion that there was no longer room for a negotiated de-escalation. Japan was put into the untenable position between a rock and a hard place, as they say. The Japanese military made the decision to take action before the gas tank ran dry. Again, it's simplified, but that's the gist. A historical counterfactual, which is probably worth pondering in this case, is a similar situation with the Soviet Union. That is, what if mismanagement from Moscow and a couple of natural disasters, like drought or crop failure, created a famine like the 1932 crisis, but placed it in 1982 instead. And the United States wasn't willing to subsidize the Soviet agricultural project. Or the disaster was on such a scale that no amount of international aid could help. Domestic unrest, destabilization of the government, loss of authority. How desperate does a nation need to get before it has no choice but to take what it needs by force. Maybe, by moving quickly into West Germany, the largest grain producer in Europe, and then on into France, the largest wheat producer. Maybe the Third World War of 1982 would have started over bread. Well, where does that bring us today? Are all of our hypothetical pieces in place? I don't think that they were before the destabilization of the global economy because of the pandemic. But I do think they are now. Because there is an undercutting of China's growth through the now almost inevitably shifting supply chain after this mess. Couple that with continued imperialist expansion throughout Southeast Asia and, in fact even into the Western Hemisphere, all aided by the distraction of the virus, and you have something very dangerous indeed. I have four essential points here, aspects essential for understanding China's moves and the new Cold War. First, economic disruption. It's clear that the supply chain that's fueled China's reckless growth and the flood of materialistic abundance is dependent entirely on the stability of China itself. The government is fine. That's a monolith that isn't going anywhere. But the fragility of the people, 
The social structures, because of the reality of life on the ground, not the propaganda, has been laid bare by the virus. Now, fairly risk-averse corporations that saw the virtual slave labor of Chinese manufacturing as a panacea over the last 30 years are suddenly stunned when factories close and laborers stop laboring. It lends a sense of insecurity. It could happen again next year, or it could happen again in the fall. It's a difficult risk for those corporations to take on. So, with the obvious over-reliance on China as the world's factory, what comes next? Well, the most obvious move is for manufacturing to shift away from the other side of the planet and back to, in the case of the United States at least, Latin America and the Caribbean. And wouldn't you know it, China has made a sizable footprint in those regions, in everything from capital investment to technological infrastructure, to the extended propaganda messaging campaign that greets you any time you interact with a video or an article or a shared post that deals with China. Since 2005, $141 billion in loans have gone to Latin America and the Caribbean region. That's more than the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the CAF Development Bank combined. But something is different now. Something's changed. China's economic growth, because of the virus and its impacts, is now negative for the first time in 30 years. So, it's time to cash in on those investments. Second, the trigger for a geopolitical gambit. The economic slowdown and the wider pandemic are the triggers for the initiation of a new stage in China's long game. You will have seen it in all of the messaging, all of the narrative, the donations of masks and protective equipment to the U.S. and other nations, the forbearance or forgiveness of some of those $141 billion in loans to Latin America and the Caribbean, and Africa too, I should add. The assertion that the Chinese method of containing the virus had the miraculous effect of reducing illness and death by two orders of magnitude over every other country in the world. It is now in the process of creating a false equivalence between the authoritarian state of China and liberal democratic governance. This is an intentional project of confusion that paints the Communist Party of China as somehow benign and the rest of the world's governments as uncaring and inept. If successful in changing minds and turning governments to the East, China will have won a strategic victory over the West, even without its perpetual saber-rattling. This was always the plan, but the pandemic has accelerated the timeline. Here's how China is actively shifting the narrative. Through various propaganda outlets, the CPC is obfuscating its own essential role in the spread of the disease. In late 2019, it shifts blame. In one particularly ham-fisted effort, it blamed the United States for somehow bombing Wuhan with the virus. But that's fine, 
Sophisticated consumers of news in the West might identify that as absurd from the start, but the intended audience might be the more willing ears of some of China's economic marks in developing nations with existing unfavorable sentiments toward the United States, like Venezuela, for instance. China has blamed the global spread of the disease on the failure of the United States and its allies to control the spread, while its own technical prowess spared its people the worst of it. By extension, an alliance with China will offer unprecedented opportunity, growth, safety, and security. The message here is China has conquered the virus, and now it's poised to save the world. It will only be necessary for those prospective recipients of Chinese largesse to accept the methods that delivered such a visible victory over the global pandemic, where other nations failed so miserably. Those are media blackouts, scientific censorship, mass deployment of highly intrusive surveillance technologies, and dominance by the party leadership of all aspects of citizens' lives. And prosperity and safety will follow. So that is the package. That's the outer shell of the House of Cards. For many non-aligned nations, and even some that may have previously been aligned with the United States and allied Western democracies, this will seem to be an entirely reasonable trade for safety, security, and growth in a newly uncertain world. Third, setting the timeline forward. But it's what's inside that house of cards that worries me. What is the fundamental structure propping up China itself, the whole Chinese project? Because whatever it might have been before, we have to come to grips with the fact that it has been undercut and perhaps even fundamentally weakened, maybe critically so. What if the illusion of Chinese economic growth is no longer sustainable? Because along with everything I've mentioned here, the global pandemic has, as I said before, exposed the over-reliance on China as a part of the supply chain. Any shift to North American partners, trade partners throughout the Americas, or even hemispheric trade partners will undercut China and its commitment to unrestrained economic imperialism. The virus has almost ensured that that shift will take place. The last 30 years have ensured that China will not accept economic contraction, much less economic pain. The authority and legitimacy of the Communist Party of China relies on the complacency of a generation or two of people it has thrown the bone of a bourgeois middle class. All of this was in place before the virus, and none of it was a mystery to those who looked. But the global disruption and sense of urgency have affected the plan on two fronts, and that is extremely destabilizing. First, it has undermined China's economy. Second, it has offered an opportunity to take advantage of long-term investment in its public image with potential trading partners in the Caribbean and Latin America, moving the timeline forward and creating an urgency that wasn't part of the plan then, but it is now.
we will begin to see China exert new levels of pressure around the world. We already are seeing that. Filling power vacuums, exploiting distraction, and taking advantage of unprecedented economic disruption. Unprecedented since the Second World War, anyway. There is one more essential component that makes this conflict into something more like a slow-burning crisis. It's something that simply cannot be ignored anymore. Something that has been ignored in order to gain and retain the good favor of a cynical adversary and a clear and present danger. Fourth, when the Cold War fails, make sure you can go hot. For years, China has been exploiting perceived loopholes in international law to turn rocks and reefs in the South China Sea into islands and outposts. This means that each declared legitimate presence creates a 200-mile economic exclusivity zone. It's an island-hopping campaign. Though this has been happening for years, I want to talk about what they did in just the last two weeks. In clear violation of the territorial claims of Taiwan, the Philippines, Vietnam, Brunei, Malaysia, and Indonesia, China has invented a new city that, unlike most actual cities, encompasses 2 million square kilometers and 200 maritime features, mostly rocks and sandbars. Or they were rocks and sandbars, Mischief Reef off the coast of the Philippines has been filled in with dredged sand and turned into a Chinese military base. Radomes, surface-to-air missiles, fighter jets, and the runways to launch them. At least six other coral atolls have been dredged and turned into similar military bases. In 2018, long before the pandemic, Commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific, Admiral Philip Davidson, said to the New York Times, China is now capable of controlling the South China Sea in all scenarios short of war with the United States. The close flybys and territorial friction that have been going on for some time aren't just a general historical backdrop to the pandemic either. Just a few days ago, last Tuesday, the 28th of April, the Chinese Navy announced that it had expelled the USS Barry, a guided missile destroyer, from Chinese territorial waters with scrambled fighter jets. The U.S. Navy denied the claim, but 24 hours later, it sent the USS Bunker Hill into the same territorial waters. I want to be clear, these are waters in the South China Sea that have been claimed by China with their island-building campaign, but I'm not sure that really makes a difference in the great scheme of international conflict. You can be legally right and at the wrong end of a gun at the same time. But in an effort to test the readiness of both the U.S. Navy and Air Force, China has been pushing hard on the edges of the South China Sea since the beginning of the coronavirus. And please do believe they will learn a lesson from any sign of weakness or lack of readiness in that theater of operations. It will only get more challenging and dangerous in the weeks, months, and years to come 
as the Chinese build more runways and ports and bases. But don't expect any of these to remain in the sphere of influence you see today. Because as the global pandemic evolves, it becomes more apparent that it is the opportunity Beijing has been waiting for to push these games into the Western Hemisphere. And what conflict will erupt then is entirely a function of what kind of opposition the West can mount now, before it's too late, if it isn't already. Now, if that isn't all just a fine explanation of why it's the Cold War all over again, why it's real and present and just as dangerous, then I guess I just haven't done my job. But don't give it too much thought. Worry will just lower your immunity. Anyway, go watch some Soviet movies. Be well, and be wise in the ways that history comes back to haunt us. Until next time. <laughs>